0: Is your business plan very unclear and you're tirelessly working at a low paying career? Let's help you get out of the rut and let go of the fear. It's time to excel into the million dollar stratosphere. Now, here's your host of The Balanced Millionaire who will take you there Eileen Mendel.
1: Our show tonight, we have a very special guest with us, and our show is dedicated to educating and inspiring business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs so they can up-level their businesses and learn new skills and implement new ways of doing business. So tonight, our guest is David Barnett. He is a graduate of the Williams School of Business and Economics at Bishop's University. He's a Canadian. He's also a graduate of UNBSJ's Electronic Commerce Management Program. David was an account representative for the Yellow Pages, and that spurred him on to start his own business, and he left the publishing industry and had a very successful venture with a partner, which he sold off and uh, started investing in income properties. And then in 2006, David he started a mortgage liquidity partners LTD and um, a ALP was a broker of commercial debt solutions for small and medium-sized enterprises, including commercial mortgages, business factoring facilities, and capital leases. That gave uh, uh, David the entree to then um, be interested in joining business uh, brokers, uh, Sunbelt Business Brokers in 2008. Now Sunbelt is one of the largest network of business brokers with over 300 offices on its six continents. And he was awarded the Certified Business Intermediary designation by the International Business Brokers Association, which he maintained until leaving the profession. Then David, after completing an extensive training and testing process in 2009, was awarded a CMEA designation, which stands for Certified Machinery and Equipment Appraiser. He then worked for multiple banks and accountants and other businesses, and over a three-year period, he helped intermediate 35 business transactions in Atlantic Canada. Following that, he joined American Express to manage their uh, corporate marketing and revolving credit programs in Atlanta, Canada. And David, he now is a best-selling Amazon um, author as well as a consultant and coach for buying and selling businesses and also for providing coaching and consulting on franchising. So welcome to our show, David.
2: Hey, Eileen. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. How are you today?
1: Oh, I'm fine. Um, did I get your bio correct?
2: Yeah. you have <laughs> an
1: extensive I... bio uh, just uh, cir- 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 circulating all of various aspects of business. From well, sales it, and advertising to, you know, debt solutions, et cetera. I guess it's really interesting.
2: It, it is funny because, you know, today I was actually in a coffee shop with my computer doing some doing some writing. I was typing up some things. When I noticed a gentleman wearing a jacket with the Yellow Pages logo and I just had to go over and introduce myself because it was a critical time for me. You know, when I got out of university, I had studied business administration and really, when you get when you go to university and you study business, they're, they're trying to turn you into a middle manager of a big enterprise, right? They, you know, these big companies need all kinds of people to to fill the mid space in their org chart, and that's where the business school people go. But it was never really my my dream or my interest um, to be in that kind of environment. I was always interested in small business, the ones that we see on Main Street or along the side of the highway. Yes. And, when i was in yellow pages those were the people i called on so i got to go and visit and talk with and meet the owners and managers of all these small and medium sized businesses and <clears throat> you know i was there from 98 until about 2006 so the the yellow pages were still a really important medium in that time because while google was around they hadn't figured out local search so no matter where you were in the world, if you typed plumber into Google, you'd get someone in California, for example. And so if you, if you came home and you had leaking pipes, you still had to grab that book because you wanted to reach the plumber that was just down the street.
1: I, re- I remember those days because yeah, I could not rely on – even when we had first had the internet, like you said, you can't rely on what they would provide because it wasn't comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And so the yellow pages, like you said, was, was the source. And now people hardly ever use the yellow pages.
2: Well, you know, the, the search engines have gotten better, obviously. And that was one of the reasons why ultimately I decided to leave is because I knew that the future couldn't be bright in that industry. And, um, but you know, I, I, I took from it a great deal of knowledge, uh, in all of those interviews, I would basically sit down with my clients and say, you know, tell me how your business works and what kind of customer are you looking for and how do you serve them and how do you make money? And so what I was able to do is, uh, you know, sort of top off my, my formal business school education with uh, a, a vast amount of knowledge about all kinds of different industries and different small businesses and really those years, even to this day, Serve me to a great extent. Whenever I'm talking with a client about buying or selling a particular kind of business, I still remember back to the, some of the things I learned from my customers in those days.
1: Well, that was uh, being paid to do market research, I guess.
2: That's <laughs> true.
1: <laughs> Which supported your your next step in your career.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true.
1: So, tell us some more about um, how you got into. Uh, you, you started out with you know the yellow pages but then you you moved into the debt solutions mm-hmm. and of course you saw some of the issues you know when you were at the yellow pages that people you know it's always about and i work with small to mid-sized businesses myself so it's always about where can we get more funding how can we get more clients how can we make more money how can we get some you know uh, leverage so that we can hire more people and all this, you know, or buy equipment or facilities. So what were some of the things that you discovered when you were working in that realm?
2: Well, you know, what, what precipitated me to get into that is, is I had started a business with a partner and then my partner wasn't interested anymore, you know, and, and so that led to us selling that business. And that was the first business I ever sold. And I I said, you know what, I'm, I'm done with partners. I'm done with, you know, trying to work things out with other people. I I just want to have my own thing. And the business we had, we served homeowners and I, and I, and I knew that I wanted to get back to dealing with business people. And so I started looking for different opportunities. And one of the things that I identified was, you know, exactly what you described, that small business people who wanted to expand, sometimes they weren't able to get money from a traditional bank. And so, um, I, re- I discovered that there was an opportunity in brokering these small business loans and capital leases and factoring facilities. And so I, I actually built a business to broker these things. And it was going really well, Eileen. It was going really well until um, something happened in 2008. If you recall, there was a, a financial crisis. Yes. And literally within a three month period, Half of the alternative lenders I was using for my clients went out of business, and and so the whole thing just kind of fell apart, and it had so nothing to do money, with me or money, my clients.
1: <laughs> money was no longer easily available.
2: That's right. It, the The whole system kind of seized up, and one what I then I had to make another pivot. I had to decide what am I going to do now, and <clears throat> one of the amazing things that that I noticed is that. While I was helping business owners find money to expand or grow, I was also being approached by people who wanted to buy an already existing business. And I was shocked sometimes at the way that they were being served, at the types of deals that were being put together, that there were these people trying to put deals together that clearly had no idea what they were doing. Um, So people like real estate agents trying to sell a business, Um, sometimes attorneys or CPAs that weren't really experienced in transactions trying to put deals together and of course all motivated by this desire to earn a commission of some kind. And I knew that there were better ways to do it and I had met in the course of my years some real professional business brokers and it just did, I realized that there was a real need in my in my city for more people who were going to do this in a professional way. And so so that's when I embarked upon joining up with Sunbelt. And I chose them because it opened the door to me for training. And you know, the there's a, a professional designation, the CBI, that has been around since uh, the 70s, maybe a little bit earlier. And I was the first person in my region to ever get it. So, oh, wow. you
1: know,
2: like the, no one had invested in themselves to do a better job at serving the, this this market, these small business owners, and so you know, as I gained experience and as I started to do deals, I, um, as you said, in about a three-year period, I did 35 deals. And so I probably have one of the best track records of any business broker in my city. You know, no one else was able to do that kind of volume. And I credit it entirely to the fact that I invested in myself, got some proper training and learned how to do it correctly. And I was able to serve people well, and I was able to properly present the businesses for sale so that the buyers would see the opportunity and furthermore the lenders and the other people that were involved would see that the deal made sense so the buyers could get obtain their financing and you know their own lawyer and CPA would approve of the deal you know going through due diligence and whatnot Um, whereas the other deals I had seen you know it's 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 a lot of hope and optimism let's let's take some nice pictures, let's present some, some numbers from the tax return and hope that somebody buys it, right? And that's exactly. that's really not how you serve, you know, a small business owner who, and this and largely it's because of a pressing personal concern that they decide that they need to sell the business because they've got to move on to something else in their life.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I was at a conference uh, just this last weekend where there was a woman uh, from uh, Washington And she had a cafe and uh, or has a cafe and also a bakery. And she was asking, does anybody want to buy it? But there was no portfolio of information. She didn't have, you know, Mm -hmm. anything in writing saying, you know, here's some statistics. Here's what the market looks like. Here's what, you know, our own business is doing. Here's the trend. Um, you know anything you know is like there was nothing she, you know she just kept jumping up and saying I've got a business for sale does anybody know who would be interested and it was like wait a minute you know you have to have um, convincing information that I could you know or somebody could make money off of this business when they take it over and that it's um, protected there's you know some kind of um, you know trademarking on the you know, bakery products that you want to ship all over the country or whatever, you know, something to protect, you know, the, um, uh, you know, secret ingredients and everything else that she was presenting. You know, it just it didn't make any sense. Well, so what, what do you what do you advise for uh, people that are looking to sell a business?
2: Well, you see, you, you just mentioned something, a word there, money. Right. right. And, and And so here's the thing is that woman sees herself as a baker. And she sees, she sees her business as a bakery. And so from her point of view, if you want to, you know, remember that Michael Gerber book, E-Myth? Yes. In her mind, she's looking for another baker who wants to be a baker.
1: Yes. Right? Exactly. But
2: what, you know, people who buy businesses, they're not actually entrepreneurs. So, so this is, this is going to be the one big takeaway for everyone in the audience. People who buy businesses are not really entrepreneurs. What they are actually are investors because they don't want to create their own new thing. What they want to do is they want to exchange value, their equity, borrowed money, etc., however they're going to do the deal, they want to exchange that money for a cash flow that they believe they can carry on under their stewardship as the new owner.
1: But and that so makes, when
2: you when you that start makes
1: complete sense.
2: I yeah. mean, when,
1: why would you invest in something that you're not going to get a return on? I mean, it, it makes
2: absolute sense. Right. So, so when you start to talk about a business with that kind of language, you realize it's not about baking. It's more like the conversation you have with a financial planner who's trying to help you work out what you're going to put in your 401k, right? Yes. And so through that lens, we then start to say, We need to build a package of information that describes what this business is and what it's delivering to the current owner and what kind of skills are required to run it because there still is that technical aspect. Because the buyer, while they're an investor, they typically are also a job seeker at the same time because most small businesses are going to be purchased by an investor who is then also going to become the general manager. right?
1: Right. So
2: there's the investment hat the job seeker hat, they both go together. And, and so this is why it's very difficult to sell a small business because each small business is unique. And so whatever characteristics are present in that, that economic black box that's generating a cash flow, we have to find a buyer that matches up in all those respects. So even in a big city with millions of people, you might have a really great business, but only a small handful of people who would make good buyers for it.
1: Now, how does the seller vet the buyer or do they vet the buyer or just let the buyer ask for, here's what I want? I mean, a lot of times, you know, these, these sellers are or buyers are naive. Like you said, they, they're not educated as to what to look for. So how how does this uh, transaction go about so it's a win-win for everybody?
2: Well, you know, there are probably 10 people trying to buy a business for everyone that's for sale. The the people who have realized, hey, starting a business is risky. I should buy one that already works instead. That knowledge is out there. And so people are actively either directly contacting businesses. It's a strategy that some people do. Or they're looking at business for sale websites or they're contacting business brokers, for example, and they're looking for opportunities that they feel meet their criteria. Now, some buyers are more organized and they actually have a written description of what they're looking. Others are more sort of window shoppers. They're kind of looking at what's for sale and wondering if it will fit with them. Um, But this is what makes the market so interesting is that it's a very inefficient market filled with a huge number of players all with different motivations and, and different opportunities are going to be appealing to different kinds of buyers. So let me give you an example. Uh, I was actually on a call with a client last night, a fellow down in uh, in South Carolina and he's a professional type. He's an engineer and and he has a six figure salary, but he's always had the dream of doing his own thing. So when we look at businesses that are for sale we we tend to look at a le- the level of cash flow we call seller's discretionary earnings. It's the total amount of money available to an owner operator that works full time in the business. So you can say it's the it's the manager salary plus the profit. Okay, in simple terms. Right. Out of that money, you have to achieve several things. Uh, the owner has to take enough money home to pay for his lifestyle. That's number one number two if you borrow money to buy the business you have to service the debt out of that money number three when you put cash into the deal you need a return on that cash that return has to come from that money as well and and because that sde figure is often based upon an ebitda figure taxes depreciation amortization have been added back which means capex capital expenditures have to come out of that money too so for that gentleman even though he's got a salary of six figures Buying a business, advertising, a, and seller's discretionary earnings of 100 grand is not ne- going to be enough, because he won't be able to get all of those things within that budget, right? right. So he's probably going to have to reach for something bigger. But a person who, say, you know, has limited post-secondary education, who is a hard worker, who is is never really ever going to be able to earn more than 40 or 50 grand. For them, that $100,000 SDE business is probably a great opportunity to move forward, right? Right. And so when we're preparing a business for sale, one of the things that we have to try and be perceptive about is who exactly is our buyer going to be? What kind of person is this? What is their likely background? And so, for example, if we're selling a small restaurant or sandwich shop or that bakery, for example... I can tell you that a lot of the buyers for those businesses come from the hospitality industry, which makes sense, right? Yes. So if somebody has been working as a cook or a server or a bartender and they want to own their own place, we can understand how they would want to make that progression. But because they come from the industry, we also have to assume they probably don't have a great deal of money saved up. And so the, the question then that we have to figure out is how are we going to prepare this and package it so that a person who may not have a lot of money to put down is going to be able to be the successful buyer? You know, a lot of the times business owners, when they think about selling their business, they, they get moved into this place where they're thinking about themselves. Maybe it's sometimes the advertising in the industry. You know, if you look at books about selling a business, it's all – Sell your business for top dollar. Get, get the best price for your business. Business brokers advertise in the same fashion. I'm going to help you get the top dollar for your business. And so the business owners are thinking about themselves. And what's funny is that when they're in their businesses, operating their businesses, who do they think about, Eileen?
1: Okay, when they're operating their businesses, um, they're thinking of somebody perhaps like themselves to well, um, go, go ahead well, and
2: when they're operating their businesses, they're thinking about their customers.
1: That's true. Yeah.
2: Right. And, and what my customers want and what services they'd like and what they will, they can afford to pay and all this kind of thing. So when you walk into a car dealership, the car dealer knows that people don't have $40,000 in their bank account generally. Right. So the car dealer has all these options available to allow you to finance the purchase. They're trying to help their buyers overcome the biggest problem that they know they're going to have. And so when somebody goes to sell their business, they need to start to think about their business like it's an item of inventory. When I had my business brokerage office, I was looking for businesses to sign up with me. I was going to package them up almost like a shopkeeper is going to package up an, an item and put it on the shelf ready for sale. And I'm thinking about who the buyer is going to be. And I'm thinking about the problems the buyer is going to have and how can I help the buyer overcome those problems so that we can do this transaction.
1: Now, what are the laws regulating this whole process? Because I know of somebody who did buy a business Mm -hmm. and they bought a retail store. Uh, They uh, also had the uh, construction, it was a furniture shop, Uh, you know, construction people came with it, whatever, who are low-wage people. Um, and, um, they found out when they got into the shop that the sales were not as expected and the people who were making the furniture, um, there was a high turnover and, and, um, worked, you know, some of them weren't as good as they thought they would be, you know, so, um, it was, everything took longer to produce because there was, you know, people coming and going and, you know, management, supply chain issues, all kinds of things happening. Um, mm-hmm. And they didn't expect that. They said, well, we bought this business. We didn't know the problems. They eventually sold it, the problems that would come up.
2: Hmm. Yeah, so when you go to the pharmacy and, you know, the doctor gave you a prescription and you go to the pharmacist and he hands you a bottle of pills, you have a feeling that what it, whatever it is is going to be safe for you, right? Right. Why?
1: Because you have trust in both the doctor and the pharmacist as well. There's there's a trust that's built up,
2: right? And and there's a there's like regulation and things protecting um, right. that that certifies the the medicines and that they're produced properly and that they really are safe and all that kind of thing. Exactly. So imagine if you went to a doctor because you had an ailment, and none of those practices existed. There was no FDA. There was no particular training for pharmacists. What kind of thinking would you go through before you took some kind of medication?
1: I wouldn't really want to take that medication. I would be so worried about it. I think it would be poisonous
2: you, or something. Yeah, right. So you would seek out you would seek out help from other people who knew that you trusted. You would you would go doing research. You would try to learn as much as you could. right? Right. You, you would go through a much more extensive process of deciding if taking that pill was right for you. And that is what you have to do when you buy a business because there is nobody watching out. And so when you, when you get into a deal, you have to understand that it really is caveat emptor, but you know what? There's, there's ways that we can protect buyers and with the way that we do it is through the structuring of the deal. So let me give you an example. Um, when someone is buying a business and if they pay cash for the business, not it doesn't mean they have to have all the cash, but if they borrow from the bank and the seller gets all the money on closing day, then what interest does the seller have in making sure that they're honest, truthful, and helpful to the buyer? They don't really have any.
1: No, it's not. Right?
2: They're going to take the money and they were, they're going to go. And so that's why when I work with my buyers, I coach people to design the deals in a way that actually gives them sort of a warranty on the business. So, you know, the way we do this is through seller financing and we do it through offset clauses on those notes. So I'll give you an example. I had a a gentleman who bought a pizzeria And the seller of the pizzeria claimed that the tax returns were inaccurate, that there was actually, there were more sales than what he was reporting because of course he was trying to dodge taxes. Right. Right. So the, the buyer bought the business, but he didn't pay for the business entirely on closing day. He only paid half down and the balance was being paid over the next couple of years in monthly installments. And that debt he owed to the seller was represented by a promissory note which had a clause that said, this note's subject to offset in the case of an undisclosed lien or a material misrepresentation. After about three months of being in the business, he knew that the guy had lied to him. The sales were not as high as the seller had claimed. And so he stopped paying the note. And he said, if you want me to keep paying this note, you're going to have to take me to court and prove that your sales were what you told me. And so he still ended up buying the business. He never got the business he thought he was going to get, but he ended up getting it at a 45% discount. And that so is,
1: that's significant. That was really yeah.
2: Significant. So, so what we do when we create this, this deal where we require the sellers to finance part of the deal is we now have created an incentive for the seller to be upfront and truthful or else they won't collect the money. We've also created a scenario where the seller now needs us to be successful as buyers or else they won't collect the money, right? Right. And so it changes the motivation on the seller's part completely because now the seller, in addition to wanting to sell the business, they now also have to figure out, are you the right buyer or do I believe as a seller that you're going to be successful in this business? Do I believe you actually have the skills, right? Right. And so- I teach people that if a seller refuses to do any amount of seller financing, it means one of a couple of things. Number one, it could simply mean that the seller is absolutely ignorant of how deals are done, which, which is possible, right? Especially if they're not, not using a professional business broker. But the, the second reason why someone may not want to do it is because they don't believe the buyer's capable. So they don't want to take a chance, right? Or the, the third reason could be that they know they're lying. Or in the case that you described with the furniture business, maybe they know that there are so many problems going on and if the buyer learned after the deal closed that the buyer would be upset and, and they probably wouldn't collect on that note. And so now the, the seller has a motivation to be honest, forthright and find the right person who's going to be successful and support that person in their role. You know, so when these deals are set up correctly and the 35 deals that I intermediated myself, only one of them was a cash deal. Every other one had a significant amount of seller financing. Anywhere between 20 up to 70% of the deals were financed by the seller. And so in every one of those cases, except the pizzeria I mentioned, the buyers and sellers became friends. And the sellers ended up taking on a coaching or mentoring role with the buyer because they needed that person to do a good job yes. so that they could collect the money.
1: There was a stake on both, both sides.
2: Exactly. And so, so that's in a natural marketplace. Um, and so there are things that happen that create unnatural marketplaces. So let me give you an example of that. In the United States, there's the Small Business Administration. And they guarantee loans from certain lenders for the acquisition of businesses. And right now, the SBA is financing up to 90% of the purchase price and only requiring the buyer to put as little as 5% down if the seller holds 5%. Well, what they're doing when they make that kind of leverage available is they're skewing the market. So now the sellers believe, I don't have to do financing. I just need to find someone who qualifies for an SBA loan yeah, yes. and I
1: can,
2: I can walk away with all the money. And so it, and so it's, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I have been quoted many times saying the small business administration does not help people buy businesses. They help people sell them.
1: Yeah. I was just, um, thinking that like, yeah, it was, it's just doing the total opposite. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, one sided, basically a one sided position.
2: Yeah. Because once, once you do that, once you sign those papers and you borrow the money from the bank, that, that's it. You owe that money, you know. And, and often they will tie in a whole bunch of personal guarantees. They'll put a lien on your house, you know, savings accounts, investment accounts, whatever you have. They're going to tie it all up. And, and if the business does turn out to be faulty in some way and you can't make those loan payments, not only are you going to lose the business, you're going to lose all those other things. And so, your
1: assets.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's a recipe for disaster. And, you know, oftentimes business sellers will say, well, if I'm going to finance part of this business, I want a personal guarantee. And that's when we say, wait a minute, you've tried to convince us your business is worth half a million dollars. And now you're telling us that the business can't stand for collateral on the money it owes you. If it's <laughs> yes. worth, if it's worth half a million dollars, the business is the collateral Yes, right. And exactly. so, so the buyer, you know, even even with a good amount of seller financing, the buyer oftentimes has to take on other debts. They'll borrow from the bank. Maybe they'll they'll use a HELOC on their home to get their down payment. So they're still extending themselves in a risky way in, in buying the business, but not to the same degree that you know the the, the seller never has the same degree of, of risk that the buyer does. Buyers typically will take their savings their home equity, they'll borrow against the bank, they'll borrow from family, cousins, relatives, aunts, uncles. They'll put it all on the line yep. to, to put the money down to buy that business. Meanwhile, the seller, if it's a good, successful business, the seller's got the house, you know, the fishing boat, the three cars, the retirement accounts, the condo in Florida, all these assets, the business is just one of them. And and so they're selling one asset to this buyer but the buyer's got everything on the line. And so I, I say to my sellers whenever they, they challenge me on this, I just say, look, here's your options. You can wait around for a buyer that has more money, but you can wait around for a buyer that's gonna qualify for more debt at the bank. But the reality is, is that people with half a million dollars are not trying to buy a half a million dollar business. They're trying to leverage that money to buy a two million dollar business, right? Exactly. And so if you've got a half a million dollar business for sale, the buyers are going to be somebody who has 50 to 100 grand and they're going to try to leverage to get the half million dollar business. And you have to figure out how you're going to help them buy it or else you're not going to sell. And most of the time when people are trying to sell a small business, time is an important function because most of the time when people put a small business up for sale, it's because of a pressing personal need.
1: Let's, let's pause at that thought, and okay. we're going to cut to a brief commercial break, and we'll be right back.
0: My business has lost its upward momentum. I'm working up to 14 hours a day, but my sales seem to have
1: plateaued. I'm so overwhelmed. I used to have that same problem, but ever since I found the Balanced Millionaire Consulting Firm, our sales and profits have risen sharply. Even our staff is more engaged, and the atmosphere is full of energy. I have
0: no time to work on my business to develop new sales and marketing strategies. I would love to expand, have strategic partnerships, and access to financing.
1: You can do all of that and more. The Balanced Millionaire Consulting Team advises you on streamlining your operations, establishing alliances, and most importantly, increasing your revenues and profits. Let us
0: help you build value and reduce stress in your business. Take charge. Don't let your business
2: control your life. Visit TheBalancedMillionaire.com or call 442-224-0160 for a free consultation. That's 442-224-0160 or TheBalancedMillionaire.com.
0: Former highly paid corporate insider and expert in scaling businesses for over three decades, Eileen Mendel is a serial entrepreneur, business consultant, renowned speaker, and author. Tune into The Balanced Millionaire on bbsradio.com weekly on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Central, and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to learn the secrets to working fewer hours and achieving financial breakthroughs, increased revenue, and prosperity while maintaining personal and professional balance and harmony. You can also hear us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Spotify. To schedule a private consultation about your business, call or text 760-450-6133 or visit inneredgeinternational.com 760-450-6133 or visit inneredgeinternational.com
1: Eileen Mendel, founder and CEO of The Balanced Millionaire. Who are we and what is our mission? We are a strategic business advisory firm dedicated to advancing leadership and business growth. Listen to what our clients have to say about us.
2: I was blessed to meet Eileen. She has done numerous things for my business from giving me professional advice to introducing me to new connections and going as far as finding me new team members. I cannot say enough about you and your business for the help they have given to my company.
0: I've been working with the Balanced Millionaires team. They've helped me in setting up a concrete plan to get my business to the next level. Eileen is a cheering, inspiring, and benevolent advisor. Knowing that she's gone through the same challenges gives me the confidence that I'm on the right track.
1: If you are a growing seven- or eight-figure business that is ready to reach new heights, contact us at info at com. That's info at com. We're back from our break, and I am talking to David Barnett. And we're talking about selling or buying a business. And um, David, um, you were just mentioning that um, there's different motivations for why people want to sell a business. Can you kind of walk us through what some of those uh, motivations are and what the buyer needs to also understand?
2: Yeah, sure. So here's, here's the first thing is that... In the, in the financial press, you hear all the time about people selling businesses for these huge numbers, right? right. And so there's this, this idea that if you build a successful business, you're going to be able to cash out one day and become fabulously wealthy. And the, the, the truth is, is that businesses sell for um, a multiple of that cash flow we talked about earlier. Right. So how much money is coming out of the business and people will have a certain degree of confidence in that cash flow and they're willing to commit future year's earnings in their investment. Okay, so, you know, uh, on the stock market, you know, you might hear uh, a business is a certain stock is trading for 14 times forward earnings. And what that basically means is that the publicly traded company is selling for 14 times It's profit, okay? And so that's a publicly traded business with professional managers, and it's usually quite big with many tens of hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. It's a big operation.
1: And there's a lot of oversight oversight also. It's federally
2: regulated. Real CPAs doing stuff, good reporting, all that kind of stuff. So when we start to get into the world of private businesses, you know, there are big private businesses, you know, manufacturing facilities and all this kind of thing, and big, you know, factories, and they might sell for seven, five, six, five times their earnings. And then when you start to get down into the small businesses that we've generally been talking about, the multiples of the cash flow get quite small. So nobody ever puts a small business up for sale because they want to cash out. Most of the time when I tell a small business person what their business is likely going to sell for, they usually say something like, why would I sell it for that amount of money if I just stick around for a few more years, I can earn that money myself. And they're absolutely correct. And so because small businesses are risky, they tend to sell for a very low multiple of that cash flow. So why on earth would someone ever agree to do that? Because they feel they need to. And so... The motivations to sell a, a small business basically come down to these things. Burnout, fatigue and boredom is one of the biggest ones. Then there's divorce, poor health, the need to relocate and retirement. And so as you can tell, those are all things driven by stuff that happens in life. Only one of those things is planned for, retirement. Everything else it's a, you know, a disappointing visit to the doctor. Or, you know, a disappointing talk with your spouse or an exciting talk with your spouse. relocation, you know, I've had clients over the years where uh, one partner owns a very successful business and the other partner is a surgeon. And the surgeon gets an opportunity to move to another city and earn more money. And they earn far more than the spouse with the business. Guess what? The business goes up for sale because the couple wants to stay together, right? Yes. And so these personal things happen. When we least expect them to, and then all of a sudden there's an urgency to move on to the next chapter of life and that's when people then start to say, "Oh my God, like the woman in your story who owned the bakery, will somebody please buy my business? I need to go on and do the next thing and so when you talk with a professional, if you talk to me or a business broker or you, or you do it on your own, um, it's then going to become, what does this look like?" And what does it look like on paper? And how are we going to show a potential buyer that they're going to be able to run this business competently to carry on that cash flow? So in the case of the baker, you know, is, is there a recipe book? Are there wholesale clients? You know, are there contracts involved or, you know, what have you? And that's when all the details of the business start to become important. And, you know, small business people, Eileen, a lot of the times, they are the central node that all decisions have to go through and they don't necessarily systematize and write down their processes and document everything and have an up-to-date operations manual. And so it can become difficult to find a buyer who's willing to jump into, you know, a hot mess. Right. I, exactly. I like to use, I like to use the example of uh, of a roofing company. Okay. so, you have a fella who knows how to install shingles he he goes out on his own he hires some helpers and then eventually grows to the point where he's got a couple of crews and he's doing sales right? right if he if he decides to sell and he's managing all this stuff without writing anything down and he doesn't have a process for quoting or or customer service and all that kind of stuff the only person he's going to be able to sell to is another person with similar experience who's maybe younger so the market is very small. He needs to find a roofer that's 10 or 20 years younger who wants to step into his role, who has the skills and knowledge to be able to do what he does. If you compare that to someone who has you know, a documented marketing plan with all of the different advertisements and marketing methods and everything that they do documented with the results showing what gives the best return on investment, and then when the, when the person shows up, how do we measure the roof and how do we calculate the cost of labor? And this is how we calculate our quote to make sure that we get our minimum required gross margin on the job, right? And so as you professionalize the business and you start to introduce all of these things and you create the, the operations manual and the employee manual and all that kind of stuff. Now, if you find yourself face to face with somebody who doesn't like their job at the bank, you can show them how you can teach them how to run the roofing business, right? right? And all of a sudden, your market now has just grown tremendously. And and so, again, going back to that Michael Gerber book, E-Myth, you know, he talks about how you need to build your business as though it were a template for a franchise, and he's exactly correct because these are the kinds of tools that a franchise has. You know, this is how we do things, and this is our method, and this is our process, and the reason they do it is so they can offer that opportunity to a wide range of people. And and that's the kind of thinking that has to go into, into preparing a business for sale. And unfortunately, so many small business people don't do the work in advance. And it's really unfortunate because once you introduce these kinds of things into a business, what do you get, Eileen? Well, once you,
1: once you introduce the concepts into a business – the business kind of runs itself. You can take a vacation,
2: and yeah, you get a better business, right? right? So, so I tell people prepare your business for sale because even if you don't sell it, you're going to end up with a business that's more of a joy to own and run. And if it does, if one of those personal things do happen to you, it's going to be easier for you to sell. And so, you know, oftentimes people who have started or are building a business, the the real entrepreneur. It's all about the creativity and the challenge and, and achieving the goals and all that kind of thing. And at some point, you need to introduce the other part of the work, which is, which is being the architect and designing the business and getting things down on paper.
1: I was just thinking about um, a local business owner where I am, and um, she took over a pet store and the pet store was in one location, and uh, she renamed, she uh, changed the lo- location in that the shopping center uh, into a bigger space, renamed it, rebranded it. Uh, she actually came out of Nordstrom, so she mm-hmm. knew how to sell and do provide customer service mm-hmm. um, because she was a, bu- a buyer for Nordstrom, and she knew what the you know, what people like, how to figure out what people like. And then she opened a second store like within a year and she's very, very successful. I mean, she was able to translate the skill sets that she had from working in a bigger company, you know, which is Nordstrom, which is customer service based um, to another, you know, business, which is in the pet, pet food business. And um, she said, she's loving it. She's loving it. Uh, so it's you, like the match, you know, it was a really good match for her.
2: This, the, you know, what, what you described is, uh, is something that I, t- I talk about quite often because what I'll, what I'll say to people is that now sometimes sellers try to sell potential. They'll say, you should buy my business because you can do this with it. And, and the, the normal retort to that is, well, if it's so easy to do that, why haven't you? Right? Okay. So the buyer who's going to buy the business they don't want to pay the seller for the work that they have to do. But if a seller is saying, here are the potential options to grow this business, that can give us a reason to buy. So in this example of, of, of the lady that you know, she had retail knowledge of how to run a retail business really well. So she bought that business and and you know, hopefully paid a price commensurate with how the business was performing. But, but she was able to buy something that she knew she could probably improve. And so in improving the business and growing the business and making it more profitable, presumably, what she's ends up with at the end of her labor is that she's now got a much more successful and profitable business. So it makes the deal look even better because she's leveraged her own skills. Exactly. And that's one of the things that, that people have to consider when they're buying a business is what... What do I know about? And, you know, I meet a lot of buyers now who are coming out of, you know, IT and computer and online fields, and there are so many businesses out there that are run by people in their 50s and 60s who have not capitalized on the internet at all. And it's it's really one of the most straightforward ways that someone could probably improve a business dramatically.
1: And it's interesting because you know but like you gave the example with yellow pages and now Google's refined its search um, you know uh, paradigms and and um, and, and uh, algorithms so that you don't need uh, a hard copy of the yellow pages anymore you mm-hmm. can just do you know type it into Google well you know there's so many more tools out there that you know hadn't been around you know hadn't been around for a you know in, in the 20 years ago or 30 years ago and now it's making it's like making the uh, hurdles of getting to the next level much easier and like you said the, the the people in their 50s or 60s haven't harnessed that they don't know how to harness it they, they're they just used to doing business as usual
2: mm. and and what's what's really special about the last few years is that even 10 years ago, if you wanted to introduce some kind of mobile computing system to, let's use that roofer guy as an example again, if you wanted to bring about some kind of mobile technology solution to better manage your work sites and your jobs, it would have required a huge investment in IT. Nowadays, there's somebody with an app that you pay $39 a month for, right? It's all of these productivity tools are now out there and they're all available at a monthly fee. You don't even have to make the big upfront investment anymore.
1: That's absolutely correct. And it's interesting that, you know, like you said, a seller that's been doing business without using those tools, you know, they maybe perhaps didn't realize or didn't see the light and then a person from IT or someone, you know, could see that if this – was systemized uh, with uh, some IT tools, this business could make so much more money.
2: Mm-hmm. You, usually those are the successful businesses because they can afford to not have to always be efficient. You know, they've, they've been successful, they've been profitable, probably paid off all their debts a long time ago. And, and so the owners of those businesses, don't forget, a business is an asset which is meant to serve the needs of the owners, to create that cash flow. Right, and the way that the owner gets that cash flow is by satisfying the needs of the customer. So, it, business is such a win-win tool. You know, it, we all we all benefit from this because, you know, we have people who are improving their own lives by improving other people's lives, right? By offering right. products, services, etc. And so, you know, those business owners who haven't adopted those tools, they're enjoying the ownership experience that they want to have and 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 that's fine it's their business they and they're free to do it however they wish but the fact that someone's been able to continuously be profitable and earn a living even without having to consistently push the envelope to be the most efficient they can be just shows how great a business it is because once you apply those efficiency tools you know it's going to get better
1: absolutely yeah. Now, now, do you find that most of the small businesses are family-run businesses um, or husband-wife or maybe a couple of friends, you know, who are partners? Or what sort of things does one run into if one is looking to buy a business?
2: Um, you know, even if there's only one owner, most of them still tend to end up being family businesses. You know, if you have one parent in a couple – and they end up with, you know, teenage children. For example, those children end up usually working in the business at some point. And so, the decisions, the motivations, they they often stem from that family unit. You know, what are we trying to do? I I honestly don't I don't run across a lot of partnerships. They're they're out there, and the ones that I see tend to be very interesting because the ones that last, Eileen, are the ones that are properly structured. And a lot of people get into business out of what I think is, you know, out of deficits. Either I need partners because I need money or I need partners because I need help or I need partners because there are things I can't do. And so in the beginning when the business isn't worth anything, when it's just starting, people tend not to make the investment in the planning and organization that is going to help everyone understand exactly what it is they're doing in the partnership. And so what what I've seen happen many times is that the business devolves into a management by committee where everyone feels they have to have input into everything or some sort of territorial thing where people start to get upset because they feel they're stepping on each other's toes and then you end up with the seeds of problems in relationships. Um, A lot of the times I will get calls from people who are trying to end a partnership and so they're looking for help on what the business value might be and how they might be able to set up a deal to extract one of the partners and unfortunately a lot of those situations just end in failure.
1: You now, we do have success stories like with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs had, both had partners, but later on they became <laughs> the sole you know, people who ended up running you know, or, or owning most of the company. Um, so partnerships can work for a while to get to a certain level of success, right?
2: Well, so here's where successful partnerships differ from other ones. Um, in a successful partnership, you have to have people who are mature and sophisticated enough to understand that at different moments, they wear different hats. So whenever I'm advising someone who's contemplating a partnership, what I'll say is you need to draw an org chart. And then they usually say, well, there's only two of us. I'm like, yeah, you need to draw an org chart describing the different roles in the business and who is going to fill each box. And there's only two of you, so your names are going to appear a lot. But your names are both going to be at the top, at the board of directors or the shareholder level, but you both can't be president, right? Right. So one of you has to be the president and the other can be the VP of something. But in your day to day functioning, the VP of marketing reports to the president and the VP of marketing gets a budget for the advertising spend, let's say. And that means the VP of marketing has to make decisions about what that's going to be spent on and it means that the other person doesn't get to come in and, you know, second guess and overlook and and veto the ad spending decisions, because that responsibility rests with the VP of marketing, right? right. And so, and 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 this is where things break down. I'll, I'll sometimes get calls from people where they'll have three partners, and two of them will work in the business, but. Nobody's drawing a salary, and at the end of the year, all three of them expect to get the same amount of money out of the business. And and I'll ask them some questions. I'll say, you know, if the if three people owned stock at the phone company, and two of them worked in the business, and the other one was just a shareholder, those two people that did a job would get a salary for the job, and the three of them would get dividends out of the profit at the end of the year. And right. so people people don't take the time to isolate. Who's doing what? And, and if somebody's doing a role that involves work every day, then just like any other employee, they should get paid a wage for that role. And then they get a share of the profit after all the expenses, including the wages, are paid. And so that's why, why I say it, it requires a certain amount of sophistication and maturity so that people don't get upset and feel that they're somehow not getting their fair shake they, they need to understand from the beginning what they're getting into, what their job is going to be, and where the limits of their day-to-day authority are.
1: That's absolutely correct. I had that issue when I had my partner with a previous business, and we did have to draw an org chart and set, you know, define who did what.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: was, you know, but, um, you know, even though I, you know, I came from the business background, he came from a medical background, um, he wanted to encroach on my territory, and I said, "No, no. no. See our orchard. This is your, yep. your, you know, your responsibility. That's my responsibility." But you have to like be very pretty strict about that in the organization, uh, like you said, and respect each other.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, we're, we're running out of time here, but I would like to um, ask you, David, what would you like to leave? The listeners, with what message would you like to leave them with? And also, how do they contact you?
2: Sure. I, th- I think the big message I'd like to leave is that if you are ambitious and you want to get ahead, very few people ever become wealthy and have time freedom through employment. It's m- almost always through owning and running some kind of enterprise where you can create employment opportunities for other people, which in turn, allow you to leverage their efforts to, to build something greater. And so really, if those are your goals, business ownership has to be on your radar. And um, if you'd like, Eileen, I'd love to do a, a giveaway. I've got an ebook called 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business. And I can give you a URL that you can put on your website where people can download that for free.
1: Okay. What is that URL?
2: Well, I'll send it to you. Okay. And <laughs> but, um,
1: anybody who but, wants that, uh, please uh, contact me at Eileen at com, And I'll go ahead and uh, forward that to you. Sure. So uh, what's the name of the book again, David? Can you repeat tw- that? Yep.
2: Yeah, 21 Stupid Things People Do When Trying to Buy a Business.
1: And and David, how can they get in touch with you directly?
2: Sure. My, my blog site is the central location, it's davidcbarnett.com, and I have books and online courses and probably about 400 YouTube videos, all addressing questions sent to me by people about how to buy, sell, manage, or finance a small or medium-sized business, and all that stuff is, is free for you to enjoy.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on our show, and it was a pleasure to have you.
2: Thanks, Eileen, for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You're
1: welcome.
0: Thank you for tuning into The Balanced Millionaire with your host, Eileen Mendel, business consultant, multimedia marketing expert, renowned speaker and author. Connect with Eileen Mendel, The Balanced Millionaire. Increase your confidence, creativity, balance, awareness, direction, motivation, and catapult your business to the next level and beyond.